Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Danielle Crittenden. And I'm Christina Hoff Summers. And Danielle? Today we have Sarah Ziff, who's the founding director of the Model Alliance. But we're really going to be talking about this incredible, unexplored frontier of Me Too in the modeling industry. Yeah, just this, you pull back a curtain and find this predatory jungle. I have no other words. And what is incredible is it's not getting the same coverage as Hollywood or really any other industry, and yet it involves women and girls. girls and young men, 14, young men, young men, lots of young men. Young men, and the young men are, are much more reluctant to speak out about it. But we're talking about young girls put in situations that are unspeakable, that make Harvey Weinstein look like a choir boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say PG. That. But there are Harvey Weinsteins throughout the modeling world. And they, there's these, like, it seems like there are a thousand Harvey Weinsteins. And they're the not known. And th- this industry seems relatively slow in it's making dabbed, right. changes. What's great about Sarah Ziff, so she was a former top model. She went to Columbia and got her BA and then went on to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. They messed with the wrong model. They totally messed with the wrong model because she went on to found after she sort of retired from modeling and she was very upset. At the very old age of what, 26? Yeah, I don't know. That's like (laughs) so over the hill. She went on to found this group called the Model Alliance and it was in 2012. So this is very before Me Too. And she produced a feature documentary called Picture Me that, that got at some of these issues. But she, with the Model Alliance, has been spearheading labor protections for children in this industry. Basic protections no- you take for granted right. in every other industry, not in the modeling industry. Somehow they were able to exempt themselves. In May, they were able to sign into law something called the Stop Sexual Harassment Act, but that was only in New York City. That this is well, that's probably where most of the models. I don't think they're in true. Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> no, they're coming out of Bismarck. No, but <laughs> no, they're, they're definitely the, coming the out of the point. Is they beautiful they, girls they, they work everywhere, and it's not just the top models that we're talking about where that seems glamorous, but even that I'm sure is not as glamorous as it seems as things never are. But we're talking about the sort of workaday models, the catalog models, the models whose heads you don't even see in in online shopping, and what they are put through. And I think let's let's hope we can do something to reveal what should be the next big Me Too movement. And and have a place for differently aged models. (laughs) Like ourselves. (laughs) No, that's another issue. Okay. Christina wants to be a model. Okay. (laughs) Let's bring on Sarah Ziff. Hi, Sarah. This is Christina. Welcome to the Femsplainers. Hi, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is such an under-talked about issue, especially post-Me Too, that you have been talking about what is going on with models since you formed the Model Alliance in 2012, correct? That's right. Why don't you give us some personal background about yourself and what you encountered? Because you started modeling when you were 14. Yeah, I... uh... I grew up in New York and was scouted on the street, actually, just after school when I was 14 years old. And 
really didn't have any other work experience at that point other than, I guess, babysitting. And, you know, I've, I've had a good career, but I also experienced some of the pitfalls of working in what remains a largely unregulated industry, which is why I joined forces with other models and founded the Model Alliance. Well, tell us about some of those experiences that alarmed you. Uh, you? I think I, I had similar experiences to many models when I say that I was thrust into a very adult environment with adult pressures. When I first started working as a model, even as a minor, I was put on the spot to pose nude or topless. You this know, is when you were 14. had unwelcome sexual advances. You know, I could kind of list countless experiences where I was not treated professionally or, and certainly not age appropriately. Was it, was it mainly the photographers or other industry professionals who were predators? Well, there were photographers who were predatory, but there's also a lot of enabling that goes on at modeling agencies and with other stakeholders who unfortunately normalize bad behavior. And I and other models found that our agencies sometimes put us, knowingly, I think, put us in predatory situations where we ended up experiencing sexual harassment or worse. You know, I, I this could be a myth, but I had a friend that uh, worked for the Eileen Ford agencies, the Ford agency, and that's one of was one of the older ones. And the story was that she was pro- rather protective. This was though like in the 70s? When was yeah, it? Well, she, she, I think it was going strong and through the 80s and yeah. possibly the 90s. No, but your friend's experience. She was there in the 80s. Oh, okay. And she said that if, if there were young women who were from foreign countries, they would live in her house. And models that were underage, she was protective. But then other agencies came along, and they were quite the opposite, more exploitative. But when you say uh, complicit or that these agencies are putting girls into these situations, that's really shocking. I mean, an agency typically represents you, you know, not not the client, not the designer, not the magazine, they represent the model. And why would they then be putting you into a situation that was knowingly dangerous? Or I assume there are photographers that are known to, to or whoever, have, have these kinds of behaviors. Is it just known and they do it anyway? They don't care? Why would they do that? Unfortunately, it's not just, it's not just photographers. There are a whole range of Industry stakeholders, whether they're makeup artists or hairdressers, casting pilots, agents, casting agents, right? Sometimes the predatory people are the agents themselves, and oh, unfortunately, course. the industry lacks accountability, and and there are legal loopholes that leave models particularly vulnerable to abuse. Your film described all sorts of abuse that I had never thought about when there's just no regulation at all that the on these. Sh- these fashion weeks, the, the models, including you, would be like sleep deprived and food deprived, and, and then underage girls who were, you know, just free to go out without, you know, any supervision. We were invited to parties with drugs and all of that. You know, fourteen, fifteen year olds. Yeah, it's a, it's funny because the the industry has a very glamorous image, and I think that there isn't a whole lot of sympathy for the plight of models. But the fact is that 
Most models are very young. Most of them start working as minors. Often they are from a foreign country and they don't have any kind of support system with them or anyone really looking out for their best interest. They don't come with their parents, right? They're shipped to Italy from Belarus or Belarus or the Ukraine, and they they can't speak the language very well. And they're they're put in, I think, model apartments, right, and in various cities. And they have no protection except the people who are supposed to be protecting them. Right. And I don't want to get too wonky on you, but... uh, It's a wonky uh, show. It's okay. (laughs) Great. Well, so modeling agencies are not like talent agencies in Hollywood that are required to act in the best interests of their talent. Actually, starting with the Ford agency, modeling agencies have escaped regulation by saying that they their corporate structure is not that of a talent agency, but of a management company. And they say that, you know, their primary role is not booking models jobs, but just providing advice. Wow. And because you, uh, providing that, advice uh, with a commission, uh, I mean, probably very hefty commission. Right. So they take a 20% commission from the model and a, uh, a 20% service fee from the client. And in many cases, unless you're a superstar model like a Kate Moss or Giselle, it often feels that the agency is representing the client's interests, mm-hmm. sometimes more so than the model. There are plenty of stories out there, and I'm not really interested in pointing fingers, but the deregulation of the industry actually did start with Ford. And unfortunately, once Ford switched its corporate structure to a management company, then all the other agencies followed suit. What do you mean when you say the deregulation? When did that happen? I believe it happened in the like late 70s, early oh, 80s. Oh, okay. long time ago. And, and what did that yeah. mean? They weren't held to these standards that you're talking about. Safety standards or liability. Right. Well, I mean, so they, the agencies, they have power of attorney and they certainly do book models jobs and actually exert a great deal of control over their working lives, but they're not required to act in their best interests. And we've seen time and time again, agents putting models in really compromising situations. And sometimes it's not just sexual abuse. It's, you know, pressures to lose weight, even models who are underweight. It's pretty pervasive, this pressure to tone up, as they say in the industry, which is sort of code for get your measurements so tiny that that you'll fit into these little samples, which most models can't naturally fit into past the age. I have a question about that. Who promotes that look? Presumably, the agencies or even the photographers want you to be very thin because the clients, the magazines, the fashion directors, the clothes designers, so who's pushing this emaciated look? Or is it just an ideal that we pursue because it's, you know, that's what some the current said. ideal is, yeah. like in the 50s when yeah. it was Jane Mansfield. I don't think models were ever quite as, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Jane Mansfield was as <laughs> unique, but don't the clothes look better? on thinner bodies, or is that an industry myth? Well, 
beauty ideals have changed over time. There is no one standard of beauty. And, and I think we should be questioning why an adolescent physique, someone who doesn't really have hips or breasts, would be presented as the feminine ideal of beauty. Before we get into the weight issue, because I want to do it, but it's, it's familiar to everybody. What I Camille Paglia says because the industry is run by women and gay males. <laughs> well, that may be true. Well, probably is true. But no, but what I want to get into is this side that really isn't fully understood. And we've sort of talked around it, but in sort of more legalistic. But let's be very graphic. You said when you were in New York City in May, you, you were helping with something called the Stop Sexual Harassment Act, which we can get into in a bit. But you, you said photographers pressured me to pose nude and provide sexual favors. Some models have been treated like escorts with their agencies, sending them to known predators and putting them in compromising situations that no child, no person should have to deal with. And the model Karen Elson has said that if you protest this, that you're not just putting these young and naive or girls who are, even if they have the wit to protest, are scared to, because if they do protest, they can be branded as difficult or, you know, that, that, that again, that the agency is not on their side. And so these people, whoever it is, have incredible power to demand these things from them. And the model is fairly helpless because she won't get work. Or, or he, a lot of young men. Right. And male models. But let's, let's have, I'd really like to hear some literal stories, whether it's from you or from other models you've spoken to. And don't worry about being graphic. What has happened? What has been asked of them? Well, I mean, I made a documentary called Picture Me that came out several years ago now. And in it, my former roommate, a model, Senna, spoke in a very unfiltered way directly into the camera about her agency sending her to a casting with a very well-known, influential photographer. and she describes him asking her to take off her clothes. And then he surprisingly took off all of his clothes and asked her that she touch his penis. And she said she felt disgusted, but there were also enablers around who were making it seem like this was totally normal. And she went along with it and then later returned home and told her agency what had happened. And apparently they didn't seem to see the problem. And this was my agency as well. And this, this Which agency? agency that it represents a lot of well-known people, well-known models in the industry. So, Which agency? Uh, you know, we're not just talking about what's happening on the fringe of the industry. This is really happening at the highest levels of the business. Can you name the agency? I can name them now. We might want to bleep it out. I don't know what the legal issues are there, but next models. Well, you know, the New York Times had an amazing story about, I'll name them because it was in the headlines. Mario Testino and Bruce Weber were photographers who sexually exploited young male models. And everyone knew it and sort of went along with it. And, you know, it's a massively well-documented, well-sourced story. And it's part of this Me Too industry reckoning. But yeah, but why isn't it reckoning? Like, why aren't these men being or whoever they are, perped walked the way that Harvey Weinstein and other, you know, how it's happening in the entertainment industry. Well, maybe it, I, maybe it did. It hasn't, it, though. It really hasn't. Well, according to the story, you know, Calvin Klein and other, you know, major 
companies have stopped hiring these photographers. Yeah, but that's two photographers. And what Sarah is saying... This is a whole world. It's rampant, and it's enabled by a whole network of these incredibly reputable agencies. I mean, I also know... I, I, I mean, my daughter... Miranda from who modeled for three years, she was based in Tel Aviv, which modeling in the Middle East has its own, uh, <laughs> its own horror stories. But she's now working with you at the Model Alliance. And she would say that she went into it later, which was a mercy. She didn't start modeling, I think, till maybe 21 or 20. An older woman. An older woman, yes. She, came to, she, she did it <laughs> mostly for the, the travel opportunities, although that Turned out not to be so glamorous as Sarah's saying, but but she at least felt she had some maturity. And of course, she had parents watching out for her and reading her contracts. And just from the legal level, we were always knocked out at how many bad contracts they were trying to put past her. And then how many sketchy situations she would be put in, including when she was in Paris. She was asked by one of the top agencies in Paris to go to nightclubs with men. And had she been younger and stupider or more naive, you know, she would, have, she would have done it. But also saying no came with its consequences. Or photographers would say to her, you know, they'd get, send her very flirty texts after a test and implying these were big deal potential assignments, suggesting that if, you know, she went along and, and did things, then she would be a sort of shoe in for the job. And this is something that we are not supposed to be tolerating now. And the women in this industry are far more vulnerable, I would say, than most actresses. I mean, as you say, we're talking about 14-year-olds. So I want to see the anger. I want to see this become as big a deal as it has in other industries. Sarah, why, why hasn't it? And, and what can you and we do to, to make this happen? One of the things that we do at the Model Alliance is offer a grievance reporting service where we hear directly from models and other other folks in the industry about abuses and you know people are seeking assistance and as recently as just a couple of days ago we had people reporting similar stories so this is all happening in real time and unfortunately it can't be addressed in a piecemeal manner we've tried over mm-hmm. the last 6 years and the problem is so massive, so systemic, that it really calls for a more comprehensive approach. And that's why we have recently, we, with over 100 other models, we drafted an open letter to the industry announcing the RESPECT program, which is essentially a, a blueprint for how to protect models and their colleagues from sexual harassment and other forms of abuse. Please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainer. You know, when you say it's systemic, it reminds me of... Um, other industries where it's, it's not that well-known, but like in, in ballet, and I remember reading a biography of one of my favorite dancers of all time was uh, Suzanne Farrell, and George Balanchine, you know, arguably the greatest choreographer of the 20th century. He was very old when she was his muse and he was choreographing for her. He would not allow the, the, his favorite dancers to marry. They couldn't marry. 
He then divorced his wife and told people he was engaged to her. It wasn't true. And she had to pretend that she didn't have a husband because she did secretly marry and then he found out and every you know and, and the thing about it is this was all taken as sort of acceptable that oh well he's this mm-hmm. you know this this creative genius and these are his ways and the, this is this relationship between the, the genius and his muse and it was systemic and it's taken a lot it may take years <laughs> to change the culture of ballet and that and I think there's a similar thing in modeling, this thing with photographers and these, you know, gorgeous models, and it was all just thought to be... Well, also, maybe this is also when you say systemic, where the weight stuff plays in, because also one of the things I remember from reading what, you know, you've been through, Sarah, and my daughter, that the agencies use the weight issue as a kind of way to almost completely dominate and manipulate you. So. You can just say one thing to a girl. I mean, you get measured. When she was working in Japan, she got measured, I think, every week. And if you had, you know, God forbid you had a donut or something and you were eight ounces heavier than you had been the last week and they'd bring out calipers and things. And they could say, oh, you've gotten fat. And they would say something so devastating. So you were also, I mean, it's always on edge. (laughs) It's almost like a, you know, some cult where you're kept on, you're deprived of food. And you're kept dancing, you know, if you gain this or that, that's it. You're fired. Your whole career is over. And sometimes this would happen to a girl in a country where she, like we were saying, she doesn't speak the language and she'd be sent, you know, she'd be said, that's it. You're sent home. And it would all be over right. because of sometimes a, a with pound. With health. Yeah. And, and, you know, sexual harassment and, and this, this kind of abuse around models health, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. All of this is very much tied to the lack of financial transparency and accountability Mm -hmm. as well. So I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that many models work in debt to their agencies. Oh, I know. I was shocked Um, to learn about that. Like debtors present. Yeah. I mean, I spoke with Ashley Mears, who's a former model turned sociologist who wrote a book about these issues. and, And in her research, she found that one in five models working, I believe this was in New York, was in debt to her agency. Now, obviously, if you're in debt, you're <laughs> that much more vulnerable to abuse mm-hmm. and to succumbing to inappropriate demands, whether it's about losing weight or providing sexual favors. Right. And you're staying in their apartments that they often... I remember Miranda would be... She would be sent to a model's apartment. There may be it's like sweatshops, <laughs> 10 girls in a one-bedroom apartment, and you're charged for that space. And often, not fair renting practices, you're charged quite a lot, which is then deducted from the fee that, you know, you have, you're, you're being paid. So it's, it's almost Victorian. Yeah, no, I mean, people have likened it to indentured servitude, right. which sounds right. extreme, but uh, you know, I think there are certainly ties to trafficking. You know, it, when you get lower down the food chain, it's it, it can be pretty dark. That's right. I think that a lot of people imagine that the life of a model is so glamorous. And I must say, watching your film, it did look pretty fabulous. And you looked fabulous. And going, you know, <laughs> Milan and Paris and, and London. And, and But you were operating at the highest level. And you were in the, you know, the top shows and the publications. 
But imagine someone who's not quite making it, but they, you know, they'll be third tier. And yeah, describe uh, the bottom of the food chain. Yes, the bottom of the food chain. Well, I mean, a huge problem that may, maybe people who are working at legitimate agencies and 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 who are kind of doing the more glamorous professional work they might not be aware of is this problem of scams, modeling scams. Right. Again, because the modeling agencies are not licensed or regulated, really anyone can own and operate a modeling agency and present themselves as a professional in the business. And obviously, it's an aspirational industry. Many more people want to work as models than are going to get legitimate modeling work. And so we get a lot of questions and complaints about phony casting directors and agents who are promising, you know, pipe dreams to to folks and then essentially stealing their money. Well, there I remember Miranda getting stopped on the street in Washington DC. So it's not a the usual scouting area for future models, future nerds, yes, but not future models. And it was a scammy agency. She was maybe 15 or something and they wanted to they promise you they they'll take you to model classes. And they'll do your portfolio, and it's only going to cost you four and five thousand dollars. You know, then you'll be launched. And I remember having to try and tell a f- my fifteen-year-old daughter, you know, honey, if they want you, you don't have to pay for your photos; <laughs> they'll do it for right. you. So, they, so yes, that preying on that—that that the dream factor of this, so many young this women was in Washington D.C. Yeah. Oh, I would think you'd, you know, have like I think fake, fake think tanks set up and going up to kids. We see you interns. as a future Soviet scholar. <laughs> <laughs> and tell them that, you know, they, they're going to be published and, you know, just pay us $4,000. and biggest journals, <laughs> the biggest quarterlies. <laughs> We're going to set up panels. With... <laughs> but, but I think, but it's preying on little girl dreams, right? That these are little girl dreams that it's sort of Absolutely. princess dreams I'm going to be. Traveling the world. And, you know, these little girls still dream of that. Right. I, I'm not a little girl. I'm old. I, st- I still think it would be so much fun. However, I did look and see in your film, there's a lot of sitting around and waiting and being going and schlepping and, and constantly getting your hair done. It might get tedious. Yeah. You know, it really, it, it all depends on who you're working with. I have to say, I, I found it, most of it, pretty mind-numbing. I, I mostly worked as a model because I, well, I got invited into this, you know, exciting world and I was glad to have the chance to do it. It's also one of the few industries where women out-earn men. Modeling is what allowed me to not just pay my bills, but also put myself through college and grad mm. school. And so, impressive degrees that you have, Sarah, from Columbia, Columbia and Harvard. Harvard. That goes yeah, against type. You're 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 like legally blonde. She's legally blonde. She she kind of hit the genetic jackpot there. I mean, <laughs> well, so no, I mean, so I, again, I don't want to suggest that the industry is all bad. I certainly right. benefited a lot from it in many ways, but I also just decided that I wasn't going to stay silent about mm-hmm. abuse that you know I think I was maybe in a in a better position to speak out about because. I am from here and, you know, I, I have other options. It's not like I, I'm sort of just catching the brass ring while I can and putting all my eggs in this basket. I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of girls 
really, you know, they're dropping out of school and sort of shortchanging their futures at a chance at success in an industry that can be highly exploitative. Exploitative and where your career lasts four or five years. And yeah. sometimes if you're a superstar, no, I mean, it can be more. Models, but that's... by the time they hit, you know, their mid-20s, they're considered, you know, retired. But to go back to what the sort of maybe lower tiers, not just the bottom, that a lot of models who are, are making a living are not, as you say, they're not the glamorous, you know, Giselles. They're not even you. They're doing catalog work. They're doing, you know, they're schlepping around doing calendars and website, you know, those with those headless pictures that you see when you want to buy T-shirts on Zara or whatever. Like, they're doing a lot of that. Well, apparently, increasingly, they're using cyborgs for that. Well, that might be a good thing because um, you can't oh, roofie a, a cyborg. Wait a minute. Do you think that your that field, <laughs> all these problems can be solved by using robots? Maybe. <laughs> no, no, I don't know what you no robot could could be. No, but cyborgs in the catalogs, Sarah. although I guess it takes money away. But as I said, you can't roofie a cyborg or send it out. I don't know. Be an escort I don't with know. men. I think they have rights to. <laughs> I'm working on a paper on that. <laughs> Sarah Ziff is the founding director of the Model Alliance, and we're talking with her about the unknown issues and the next frontier of Me Too in the modeling industry. Tell us about, first, your legislative achievements that you've done and what you think needs to be done further to start tackling these enormous issues that face models, aside from, I would suggest, getting Ronan Farrow on the case New Yorker. <laughs> and tell us about the villains, uh, <laughs> people who are pushing back and trying to hold on to the old ways for right. whatever purposes. <laughs> Our legislative advocacy really started when we looked at the laws on the books several years ago and found that models, underage models, were not covered under labor law, shockingly in New York State, which is really the, the center of the fashion industry. Wait a minute, they're not, York, they're not uh, covered at all US. by ch child labor? N no. Are they exempt no, or something? No, they were cut out of oh. labor law. That wasn't the Ford agency that did that, I hope. <laughs> You're, why are you so dedicated to the Ford agency? <laughs> I believe in Eileen Ford. It was like a finishing school for my girlfriend. We're in, the wa we're in Washington. It was the Gerald Ford agency. It was a Gerald Ford. The Betty Ford. Sorry. Go <laughs> Betty on, Sarah. Ford is Sorry. More for me. Sorry. Go ahead. But so, yeah, we... we championed the Child Model Act in mm -hmm. 2013, which extended child labor protections to models as child performers, just like actors and singers and dancers. So now, you know, models under 18 working in New York have to have a child work permit and provisions for trust accounts and, you know, chaperones if you're under 16 years old. So there is a degree of protection. It's not perfect. That's um, great, but that's, you're saying that's only in New York. So we go back to the Dickensian aspect of children working in other states do not have these protections? There's no employment uh, for them? They don't have yeah, to stay I, in school or have tutors if they haven't... Gra if they haven't well, maybe education, but what about this, these other things? Sorry. Oh, I know, all yeah. of these things. Sure. And the, the child labor issues are not the only pressing problem. So w more recently, we, I, I teamed up with a law professor and some folks at Fordham Law School. And we did some legal research and found that models were also, because of the sort of unique multi-level structure of hiring between models and agencies and clients, models 
lacked protection against sexual harassment in the workplace. Which is crazy. I, I don't even... The more we dig, the more we find that this just seems to be sort of uncharted territory and that we're incredibly vulnerable. So, yeah, we've just last year, shortly after the Weinstein story broke, we introduced the Models Harassment Protection Act, which would protect models from sexual and other forms of harassment on the job. But this was only in New York City, right? Like, not to, not, it's like a great initiative, but we're still talking about very small regions? Sure. I mean, you know, New York City is obviously a yeah, hub. Ground zero for uh, modeling. But yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of work to be done. And this is a global industry where, you know, models often, it's not like you just work in New York. You're often booked for jobs all over the U.S. and even in the, all over the globe. You might be working in New York on a Monday and Paris on a Wednesday. That's if you're yeah. lucky, or you could be in Istanbul on the Friday, and that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, legislative advocacy is important, but we've really taken a step back and thought about how we can address this in a more comprehensive way that really reaches models wherever they're working around the world. And changing legislation is tough, and, and I think that there, there would need to be a lot more advocacy in various different markets before we'd see significant change. So that's why we've, you know, in part, why we've introduced the RESPECT program, which would require agencies and publishing companies and brands to sign a legally binding agreement to uphold a code of conduct. And this is, you know, we've seen initiatives in the industry so far that sound good on paper, provisions for notifying models in advance if they're going to be asked to pose nude and other similar protections. But all of it is essentially meaningless and nothing more than a PR move mm-hmm. if you don't have any kind of enforcement mm-hmm. power and, and if there aren't real consequences if people violate the code. Is there a place right now where models can go to file complaints other than just anonymous complaints on Internet websites? Yeah, I mean, it's really awful. We've seen these long lists of accused predators popping up online. And in some cases, I'm sure that those allegations are credible. In others, you know, people's careers have been ruined. We need an independent body that not only receives complaints, which we currently do, but that can conduct impartial professional investigations. And so the RESPECT program would allow models and really anyone in the industry to bring forward complaints, whether they were a victim or they were a bystander. And that way, these, these complaints can really be followed up on, and then we can issue remedies you know, where there are meaningful consequences. But until, I think this has maybe been, I, I hope for you, too, the inspiration of Me Too is sometimes you're trying to build these legal systems and you can't, what it really takes is this public reaction right, to right say now. this is enough and everything that is going on in this industry that you describe should be enough, you know? And you must have felt the change. I mean, you've been doing this for yeah. several years and now in the post-Weinstein environment, aren't people more receptive to your message? Well, I, I've been banging this drum for a long time, and, and for many years, the industry was not willing to listen. Some well, they cases, had no incentive, right? said that I was 
you know, making this up or overblowing it and that, you know, well, oh, you know, our models don't have any, any of these problems. Well, now I think, you know, we're seeing companies actually coming to the model alliance very much wanting to work with us or mm-hmm. be associated with us and, and are willing to talk about what meaningful lasting change actually entails. How can we help you, Sarah? What's the best thing our listeners and everybody website can do? and info. Oh. <laughs> yeah. This is your uh, chance yeah. for an unpaid political announcement. Uh, Sorry, unpaid <laughs> commercial announcement. You know, I, I would encourage anyone to check out our work at modelalliance.org. We have a lot of information about our various initiatives. If you want to learn more about the RESPECT program and read the open letter from over 100 models, including some of the biggest names, who are supporting this initiative, you can go to programforrespect.org. And that really outlines the, the sort of blueprint for how we plan to address these problems. And which is really, you know, it's new to the fashion industry, but this is actually an approach that has been used in other industries like agriculture and the garment industry, for example, mm-hmm. to address seemingly intractable issues like sexual harassment uh, very successfully, actually. We can end this on your own words, actually, when you were speaking about the Sexual Harassment Act, and you said, this is so poignant, it sounds like something from 1876 or something. Yeah, it says, you said, too often models have been treated as objects and not as legitimate members of the workforce who deserve to be treated with the same dignity, respect, and basic legal protections other workers enjoy under employment laws. It's crazy that this industry does not have those basic rights. Absolutely. Including the same protection against sexual harassment that anybody in any business corporation in the United States has. Well, thanks to people like Sarah, I think there will be change. Right. And I'm going to work on the think tanks next. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. And and anything we can do to help, we would love to do. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Bye. Bye. Okay. They only want you when you're 17, when you're 21, you're no fun. They take a Polaroid and let you go, say the legend rule, so come on. Someone has called the fashion model industry an ugly industry for beautiful people. And it's kind of true. What people don't understand is it's, it is 19th century in the sense of wild, unregulated, right, no anything goes. Laws. I mean, if you're, as we know now, and this is good, if you're working at any level in any North American company and some boss does something even mildly inappropriate, you have, you An know, there are there, there are so many avenues. And yes, there are still problems. And yes, you can, as we see that women and people can still be punished if they come forward. We've made progress. We've made progress. As I was saying, just briefly with Miranda watching what she went through. And it wasn't just, you know, the Tel Aviv-based agencies were, some were more reputable than others, but they were plugged into all the international agencies. She worked with Next. She worked with many well-known agencies, depending where you went in the world. And her father and I were chronically horrified and shocked, let alone, I do think they use the eating disorder as this kind of you know, like North Vietnamese mind control of you, of, of constantly running you down. And it happens to young men, too. There's a right. you know, network of predators, some famous photographers. The Times had a we expose. Talked about. So I think that 
she's doing very good work in an area of what no one thinks about. They think, they think it's glamorous and wonderful. And there, a lot of parents have daughters who aspire to be models. I still think it can be glamorous and fabulous. What was that song, <laughs> Mrs. Worthington, Don't Let Your Daughter Grow Up Into the Stage? Like, really old song. Like, I'm really... I only know, don't let... What is it? Don't let your son... Don't, don't let... What's the one about cowboys? <laughs> oh, don't let your son... Okay, bottom line, don't let your daughters become models unless they are very well protected. And, um, and watch over them because right. no one else is. Right. And um, it's kind of true in think tanks with research assistants. You're, I, well, you abuse your think tank assistant. I do. Ned, I give here. him. He's here. He's, he's sitting chuckling. here. He's pretending to chuckle, but he's really terrified. Yes. We, <laughs> we, we recruited him at a young age. He was just a recent University of Chicago graduate. He didn't know the ways of the world. And the levels of our abuse are like he sometimes works weekends, we, right? Well, I'll, uh, yeah, or 2 a.m. I'll say, I need this article. Do you have it? And he sends it. Wow. Partly because he stays up all night. That's, What's up with that? That's the next <laughs> Me Too frontier. <laughs> <laughs>